Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we dig in the archives to find the most amazing interview things that you have never heard before. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Christopher, we've got some great clips from the interview archives to play for you this week. But first, what's the first single you ever bought? Oh, <laughs> Uh, actually, I do know that. I can, yeah. I can, I can picture it. It actually had a. Um, do you call it a picture sleeve? The out, the outside part. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, instead of yeah. the classic forty-five, where you could yeah. see the label through the the hole, um, it was by the Kingston Trio. Oh. And it was called, "Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley." <laughs> <laughs> Should I be ashamed to admit this? Well, isn't that kind of the classic folk tale about a guy going to his death or something like that? Yeah, it's not a pleasant ending for, oh, for Tom. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know what it was? I think I, I loved songs that had a lot of melody, great singing, but also had a narrative. Like the other, some of the other early songs I bought were um, uh, El Paso by Marty Robbins. Down in the West Texas the town, town of El Paso. Exactly. And um, the third one in the trifecta is uh, Johnny Horton and... Uh, I don't know whether it was... The Battle of New Orleans? It might have been that or Sink the Bismarck. <laughs> but either way, there was a story to tell. Right. So you like story songs and, you know, don't we all? Like, uh, by the time I get to Phoenix and... You Seems know, there's a lot of death involved in mine upon I, reconsideration. Yes, I was, was going to say that, but, you know, I didn't want to bring the room down. But uh, <laughs> um, And it is funny. For me, the first song that I ever bought was the Bee Gees' Nights on Broadway. Oh. And when that song came out, I knew a little bit about the Bee Gees' history because my older brother had their greatest hits but that's their greatest hits from the massachusetts new york mining disaster era and then i heard this and i wasn't one of those people who went that's the bgs because i you know i was like a kid i was probably 12 or 13 when it came out and it just sounded great on the radio but also there was this kind of sadness to it too you know the i will wait i know you've played i know you guys your band tried to play this song live <laughs> we, we couldn't do that's it that's right and it, uh, it's a complicated song but it's also there's a tinge of sadness to it but i love that song when it was out 1975 yeah when i interviewed them i i confessed that i had tried to play it with my band and they were like oh yeah that was a bitch <laughs> that's funny <laughs> Speaking of the Bee Gees, we have a great series of clips from Barry, Robin, and Morris Gibb from 1976 coming up on the show. And at the time, they were riding high from the success of Main Course, which featured Nights on Broadway and Jive Talking. And they were also promoting the album Children of the World, which featured their first pure disco hit, You Should Be Dancing. It is a great conversation with the Bee Gees and Roger Ashby. Then we jump forward to 1982 with an extremely charming interview with Nancy Wilson from Heart. She talks about having Canadian roots, even though they're not a Canadian band. And she also talks about being tied to political causes as a band, even if they themselves aren't particularly political. It's an interesting conversation. And she also talked about what it was like to tour with John Mellencamp in the early 80s. She says some pretty funny and interesting things about him. Then we wrap up things with a very in-depth interview with Michael Bublé in conversation with Marilyn Dennis in 2011. Marilyn and Michael have great chemistry. I'm sure that's no surprise to anyone. They talk about Michael's brand new marriage, and interestingly enough, Marilyn attended that wedding. And he also tells some very funny stories but I'm also going to share with you some of the behind-the-scenes drama that Michael was dealing with just moments before this interview started. 
But first, let's get going with the Bee Gees. 1975 Nights on Broadway, the Bee Gees. In 1976, the Bee Gees couldn't have been hotter. <laughs> or could they? Yeah. Main course, featuring the number one hit Jive Talkin', along with songs like Nights on Broadway and Fanny Be Tender, was a big album worldwide, but nowhere bigger than in Canada, where it was a number one album. Consider that the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever was just around the corner, an album that would take the band into the stratosphere. Roger Ashby, in his understated way, is the master interviewer here, and he takes the conversation in some interesting and not typical directions. The interview starts with a fascinating analysis of a song's creation, the thinking behind the process, and then the strategy required to make it a hit. And the song we're talking about here is Fanny. We didn't have Fanny in the first place. What can all, all, all really be said about this song is we, we had uh, Be Tender With My Love. We had the song title, and it was um, it was Morris that suggested Fanny. He said, "Why don't you stick a name at the front, like you know, Ricky? Don't lose that number, or you know, have a nice woman's name there." And that's really how it came about. You know? It's usually if if a song title has a girl's name in it, it seems to be uh, more quickly and easily identifiable. It's more it. identifiable, but not always a hit. Not not always. Uh, it's not always that uh, sort of um, secret. I mean, if uh, we knew all the secrets of uh, making a hit record all the time, everyone would be a hit. And uh, we'd probably be multi multi-millionaires even if anybody could pick a hit record. You know, it's just... Um, well, luckily very our manager has an, an, an amazing knack yeah. for picking records that are hits, so, which when, makes us very happy. When you're writing songs and putting together an album, do you write, uh, you write specifically with singles in mind at times? Yes, or do you? Well, yeah, because we, we, we're sort of still in love with the singles market. We're not, we, we want to make our albums sell and we want to have album hits that makes a lot of money for everybody and makes everybody happy that, that works with us. And, uh, but we haven't gotten over our love for the singles market as well. We love having single hits, it knocks us out, you know. So we make, when we make an album, we make an album that we, we've got as many singles as possible on it, mm. you know. That's good our news. Own, our own, in our own minds, when we do make an album, we would, we would prefer to say that uh, every track could be a single, you know. That's, uh, that's yeah. how we, every, we as we do each track, we know? think of it as being a single, you know. We don't like the idea of someone saying, now what single can we put out of this album? We want them to have the confusion of choosing one, you know? Yeah. We don't want to... Uh, <laughs> so far they have. <laughs> you know. How many singles do you feel you can usually get off an album before... Uh, I think three at the most. Yeah. yeah. Three at the three most. Three seems to, to be a magic fair, number, Most of people will be covering. If uh, your last album... People buying the album as well, so you, you, you're yeah, losing singles all the time. The album's out, you know, as well. But three would be about your limit, I think. Does it bother you when somebody does an edit on one of your songs? Yes. Not without, we, without, without our knowledge, it. yes. <laughs> We hit the ceiling, and they all know. Nights on Broadway, for example. Yeah, yeah. Was that done with your permission? With and without our permission. We didn't. We didn't approve at first. We didn't like the edited version, but they assured us they were giving both sides to the DJs anyway, so the DJs could choose which side. And we thought, well, DJs have got good taste. They'll go for the side that's properly done, even if it's a little long. You know. Well, I'll tell you something. I must admit that we played the short version of that when it came out initially. Yeah. And we got so much feedback from listeners, phone calls yeah. and letters, mm. that we had to go with the long version. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And once we had the long version on the air, there was no question that we should have been playing it all along. I mean, right, yeah. and you love so right they wanted to edit. We said, where are you going to edit that? Where are you going to edit it? it? It has two nice verses and nice big choruses, then it goes into the bridge. You're going to cut the bridge out? You... It's not even long. No, it's just the right length. But they still had that, oh, but we have to edit it, you know. 
Tom Barry Gibb once again takes charge in explaining for probably the thousandth time why they made the move to disco. They are specifically talking about the song You Should Be Dancing. He points out that it was anything but an exclusive choice. It was an um, out-and-out blatant dance record, you know? I mean, why not? There's, it certainly worked, and a lot of people have enjoyed it, and it's still going now, and still selling now. And a lot of, a lot of uh, stations in America still haven't taken it off their list, you know? You guys personally like that kind of music, or did you just feel that it was right to do it because... No, uh, that's not true. We, do, not, we didn't go do it because... We, it wasn't a deliberate... To cash in on a situation. You know. we, we're, we're turned on at the moment by disco music. We're turned on by R&B. We're turned on by ballads. At the moment, we, we're able to enjoy writing all kinds of music. So we're just getting into all kinds, you know. At the moment, we seem to be hitting it off successfully with R&B or, or disco, but we want to go much further afield than that, you know. We want to expand and... and uh, develop our music, not just in those particular areas, you know. You know, you can tell there's a touch of frustration in having to defend what is clearly a monster hit. But remember, as you said earlier, Christopher, this is only 1976. Imagine the explaining they're going to be asked to do in the next decade. Well, I guess you could say they got the last laugh with the success that they achieved. But I remember interviewing them in the late 80s, and there was still that little edge of defensiveness about some of the musical choices they'd made. And I was there as a full-on fan who just loved the fact that they had so many great songs. Yeah, yeah. In this clip, they talk about some of the odd avenues to having a hit. The song in question is Love So Right. Oh, that was when we left um, the Isle of Man. Where we, were, no, uh, we, we did come. We basically had the idea and, and, and came at the end of um, main course. Mm. When we'd finished and we didn't, we didn't have any room to make any more tracks, that idea was there, so we thought, well, let's, let's save that till next year. All it was was how a love so right can turn out to be so wrong. That's all we That's had. That's all we had. Was, was just a nice line. So we waited till this year, we developed it and finished it. It's, it's in the vein of Fanny, but we think it's, it, it relates more than Fanny does. You know, it, it's it's more for everyone to listen to rather than any girl called Fanny. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if you have a name song, then the girls, who then people who buy records have that name. They relate to it far more than than people who haven't got that name. There was a, a funny example in London uh, when the disc jockey Tony Blackburn had just separated from his wife, and uh, he kept playing it because he thought it was their song. You know, how can a love so right turn out to be so wrong? You know, and he kept playing it, so it was a good thing for us that at that time he separated <laughs> from his wife because he kept bashing it, you know. And the other one is, um, what was that other record he kept playing? Um, oh, I don't know, what hasn't been played yet, I don't know what it was called now. Anyway, so similar sort of, uh, yeah. bo- uh, lyrically. Broken Love. Broken Love. I was in England at the, at the time when he broke up with his wife. It got front page in the newspapers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. That's okay, I got big front news pages too. <laughs> <laughs> that is well, more like television. I can't imagine any disc jockey here getting front page for anything he did. Right, but... Well, it's like if you had, like, uh... It depends what he did. At a time like... (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) The top disc jockey in, uh... Say, in the 60s was, like, Murray the K, you know? Mm -hmm. If it had happened to him, yes, it would have made front page. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, in fact, we just did a Murray the K interview yesterday. It was very very interesting to see him again after so long. Yeah. And he's, uh, apparently had a heart attack with her. Yeah. And, uh, he had to cool down his work and all that. Mind you, he looks well. Very nice to see him again. The Bee Gees in conversation with Roger Ashby in 1976. And you can hear Roger playing some of the greatest hits of the 50s, 60s, and early 70s on the Roger Ashby Oldie Show, only on the iHeartRadio app. Here, again, the Bee Gees talk about early influences, including some that you might find surprising. Neil Sedaka, Ray Charles. Ray Charles. 
Roy Orbison. Everly Brothers. Everly yeah. Brothers, yeah. Harmony-wise, it was Sadaka and the Everly Brothers. Yeah, and, I would have uh, thought you would have said the Everly Brothers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, naturally, the Beatles in later on. They naturally gave us influence, which I don't think they uh, have. They've given him, uh, a lot of influence to everybody. But, yeah. um, I mean, you wouldn't have your hair like it is if it wasn't for that. <laughs> uh, you know. That's true. How true. And uh, the thing is, I think uh, for harmony wise, definitely Sadaka. For the yeah. harmony, three part harmonies. Yeah. Uh, even some Mills Brothers even have given us. Oh, well, we were children, our father was pumping the Mills Brothers into us. So I think harmony, harmonies. we have to. You have to say our first influences were the Mills Brothers. There we are, Roger Ashby in conversation with the Bee Gees in 1976. Still to come, she's one of the legendary guitarists in rock, and she's also incredibly fun to speak to. Nancy Wilson of Heart is next on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. That's Hard and Crazy on You from 1976, which is six years before this interview takes place. Christopher? Tom, in 1982, Hart was in decline. They released a combination greatest hits and live album in 1980. Oh, I remember that. And they followed it up with Private Audition, a release that was well below their previous sales yeah. numbers <laughs> and album titles. They tried changing producers, but sometimes that's like firing the coach to fix the problem with the team, right? Right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Now, they were a couple of years out from the comeback of 1985, which featured the number ones These Dreams and Alone. They'd changed the rhythm section, and the sound was evolving away from the guitar and sort of folkier style of their earlier hits. Guitarist and backup vocalist Nancy Wilson played second fiddle to her sister Anne at the time. Things would change in a few years when it was Nancy Wilson's vocal that we heard on These Dreams the group's first number one hit. Yes, I kind of think that really got on Anne's nerves, that it was Nancy who sings their biggest hit. <laughs> and of course, Anne is the front person of the group yeah. and is an amazing vocalist, right? But I do think there was a little bit of jealousy involved there. You think? <laughs> yeah. Nancy starts the interview talking about their first real fans. Nancy Wilson, it's been at least nine years since we last met. I miss you. How are things going? Oh, I missed you too, you know? It's been going pretty good. All right, do you feel a special affinity for, for Canadian audiences since you played the Vancouver music scene? That was a, an intentional move on, on you and your sister's part uh, a number of years ago. But uh, you did start to break nationwide here, and uh, it was during those formative and growing years. So do you still feel some sort of uh, closeness to, to this country? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, most of us lived up in Canada for you know the good part of eight years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so they were our first real, real fans. And Toronto's really great. Montreal's wonderful. We love playing in those cities. And I know it's been too long, but we've just been, you know, making albums and touring and making albums and touring. And so finally we're getting back to it. Um, yeah, it's really our home away from home, like I've always said. Uh, and I always mention that, you know, whenever I talk to people about, where did you get your start, you know? Mm -hmm. I say, well, we have two homes. We started in Canada, and then, and then we sort of regionally, after that, got started in the States. 
You know, I know I've proclaimed my undying love for Nancy Wilson in a previous episode, but I would like to fawn over her once again. Yeah, I knew. Great person, wonderful interview subject. The interviewer is my good friend, Gord James. By the way, if you're a big heart fan, there's a great book. It's like an autobiography by both sisters. Ah. You know, in their own, like they each have their own sections. And it's called Kicking and Dreaming, Anna Nancy Wilson of Heart. Good title. Yeah. Here, Nancy talks about the recent changes the band made. Now, the band has gone through some personnel changes. Uh, they went through them a couple of years ago, actually. Were you cutting down the size of the band? Uh, was that one of the reasons? And are you happy with the present size of the band now? Yeah. Um, we started out with, as you know, with six people. Mm-hmm. And Roger Fisher was the lead guitar player at the time. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was being pretty much overshadowed by you know, the big electric guitar whirling dervish thing. And I finally got to step forward a little bit when when Roger went solo. And uh, now I really feel like I have all the chance I need to express myself on all my different kinds of guitar mm-hmm. playing, because I do, you know, acoustic and electric and keyboard. And this way, with five people, I don't have to be kind of stuck in the back just playing acoustic guitar on most of the songs, which is kind of superfluous to a lot of the music. And uh, the band is much tighter, much more essential now, and much more fun. Are you going to increase the, the membership of the band, or better still, augment the current lineup on stage at all? No, I think five is, is the magic number for, for Heart. Um, we're real happy with the five players we have now. Um, the three original people are me and Anne and Howard Lease, our original guitar player. Mm-hmm. And we've just added our new bass player and drummer. Mm-hmm. And that's the only change that's recently been made. Um, we really needed a fresh outlook in our rhythm section uh, of people that were, you know, non-jaded and interested in our music and, you know, more inspirational to the group as a group, uh, the other guys really were at the point where they needed to do their own thing musically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got to respect that after a certain amount of years. So we've got new blood in the band, uh, and it's really feeling good. Um, we're yes. even writing songs together as a band, which was really getting hard to do before. You're sounding damn good, I'll tell you. And it feels great. It's really, it's fun to be on the road even, which is another amazing thing. (laughs) Yes. A lot of people don't like the road. Yeah. You can see how the change in the lineup revitalized Nancy's view of the band. Tom Hart was associated with the No Nukes initiative, but that wasn't entirely representative of their views. If I can make a, a, a right turn here. Okay. Are you on a personal level aligned with the anti nuke movement? Well, on a personal level, yes. Um, well, actually, what we're about to do is a benefit in Portland, Oregon, um, pretty soon, like September. There's going to be a nuclear freeze benefit concert uh, with a whole bunch of a different cast of characters than the, the usual known nukes concerts. Mm-hmm. Like, we're probably going to have some, some people from Supertramp and Rush and Hart, probably just Howard and Ann and I doing a... A, an acoustic rock type thing Great. and I myself wish that 
it didn't have to be anti-anything. I would much rather approach it in a pro-solar, pro-alternative power type vein, but the people putting it on, you know, I tried to talk them out of it, but, but that's just how they do it. So we're doing it anyway in that way, but... Like, we are not up on soapboxes, and we really don't like to mix our art with politics because it's an important important issue. However, when people go to a rock concert, they go to a rock concert. They don't want to go to a political speech, you know? True. And so there's, there's really a fine line to be drawn between, you know, those kinds of things. You know, that whole thing is pretty tricky. You know, just like the rest of us, artists have their causes— but unlike the rest of us, they have very big platforms from which to share those views. You know, I understand that some people don't want artists to preach from the concert stage, but I don't agree that they shouldn't be allowed to share their beliefs on social media. You know, people like people tell singers like Jan Arden to stick to music, but she doesn't tell them to stick to their jobs when they have their opinion. It's so weird. Well, Jan Arden is an extremely articulate yes. artist, besides being one of the funniest people on planet Earth. Yes. So. I think I've told you that someone just like went to town on her on Twitter, right? She retweets it and says, you know, I think you and I could be friends. <laughs> Jan's great. Well, the other thing is that artists are constantly sort of challenged as to what their opinions are about serious topics. Nobody comes up to you and I and says, what do you think about climate change? Right. Okay, back to Nancy Wilson. She talked about the tour that they were on at the time. We really enjoyed your concert last night with John Cougar opening up. He uh, he does play well and does play well with your music too, if I may say. Oh, thanks. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's you know he's pretty wild. He's a wild man. He gets the people going. And it was it's really fun playing with John. Nancy, where are you going to tonight? Where are you playing to tonight? If you can remember, I realize you're on the road. It gets a little upsetting, but <laughs> really, where am I? Yes. Well, well, we've got a day off, and we're going to travel to Columbus, Ohio, and play there next. And maybe, if we're lucky, we'll find a little club somewhere out there to surprise a few people and do, you know, appear under the false name of Anne and the Pencils or something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and i got to admit, I wish I had seen Anne and the Pencils live in a small club. <laughs> <laughs> That's Hart on Famous Lost Words. And just a reminder, you can hear more from Hart in episode 408, which also contains interviews with Paul McCartney and Bare Naked Ladies. Up next, Michael Bublé talks about why he doesn't get nervous before a big show. And he also discusses the very moment he fell in love with his wife. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. And I'm feeling good. From 2005, one of his earliest hits, Feeling Good by Michael Bublé. Tom, he's talented, he's funny as hell, <laughs> and he's Canadian. Yay! No surprise that Michael Bublé effortlessly gives a great interview. Now, you may forget in this series of clips that he's not a bad singer, has had a few hits, and he's known for his music. But if you don't know anything about him, you'll come away charmed for yeah. sure. Marilyn Dennis is. I'm positive. She asks about an odd backstage encounter. How are oh, yeah. you? How are you doing, honey? I'm good. How are you? Good, good, good. You have a little bit of a cold. I know that. A little, little bit. A little bit. Yeah, I'll be gone, though. It'll be want, gone. What do you want to talk about? On stage, off stage, the book, or you want to talk about the CD? It's whatever, your choice. Whatever you want to talk about. You're well, the boss. Well, I am? Yeah, this you're is the very boss exciting. of me. Okay, let's talk. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Speaking of your wife, congratulations. Thank you. She's beautiful. She's a beautiful girl. 
And I, lo- I love the story about how you met. Yes. And you met backstage, which yeah. was great. And the funny thing about that is you weren't sure if she was single or not. You want to tell everybody about that story? Yeah, well, I wasn't sure if she was single. And so I, because she brought this guy with her. <laughs> and the guy, was, the guy was pretty good looking. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to hit on her because I thought it was rude if they were together. Yes. But I got a little drunk and... And uh, by the time, you know, by the time I finished talking with him, I, I guess I was saying things like, oh, you look at this, you have such big muscles. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you guys are the most beautiful couple. And uh, that's when he looked at me and said, no, we're not together. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, that's amazing. Not knowing that at the same time, my wife was texting her mother saying, I come to meet Michael Bublé and he is gay. <laughs> yeah. I guess you can see it from both angles. I don't know. I was, uh, I was, I was really taken by her. I was yeah. absolutely just smitten. love at first sight love at first sight smitten with her and and then you know there's that barrier of languages she speak better english than you speak spanish when you first much met much better and so no, how- no no when she when i met her she spoke no no english wow and i wow. spoke no spanish so we used a macbook <laughs> and we go and we would touch f12 or whatever it is and yeah. it has the translator right and we would like type like uh, you know I am hungry. Are you hungry? <laughs> and, and you know, it's weird. At one point, one night, the first night that we were hanging out, we, uh, I think we really just were crazy about each other. And we just, we just stopped using it. We just started, like, talking with our hands and trying to make sounds. And I don't know. It worked, though. It really did. And then she learned English. And I learned Spanish badly in, in three years and in six months she she had perfect command oh, of the language. Wow. I just haven't met you yet. That's Michael Bublé in a song he wrote for his wife, Luisana, and that is from 2009, Haven't Met You Yet, and she was in that video very memorably. She's great, and her full name is Luisana Lopilato, and she herself is an accomplished actor, singer, and model. Tom, here's the advice that Michael Bublé received from one David Foster. David Foster said to you that... Don't talk about. Don't talk to your friends too much about what you're doing. What What did he say? Yeah, he said, "Don't talk to your friends about what you're doing. No matter how sweet you're trying to be, they'll never understand." Right. He said, "They'll just they'll you know don't talk about money. Don't talk about who you met because people will just think you're showboating." And yeah, you still have the same friends you had from high school? No, they wouldn't listen to these stories of mine. About, <laughs> no, I do. I do. All of, all the same ones. All the same ones. All which the same I think ones. It's really great. And they and they um and they're they're so. They're so good with me. I mean, they, yeah. they, they went through a tough time in their life yeah. with me because uh, it got weird for them, I think, at first. But then they realized that I didn't change, and I think it made them far more comfy. And, and now they're, they're even used to it. That is such an interesting clip about the cost of fame in terms of your relationship with your friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here he talks about meeting Simon Cowell and dealing with negative attention. How about the time that Tony Bennett couldn't make it? He was sick and he couldn't make it to American Idol. And Bruce Allen called you and said, uh, do you want to go and perform on American Idol? And was I that said, a, was that yes. It was terrible. <laughs> Me and Simon Cowell got, well, we didn't get into a fight that day, but he, uh, that night I came up on stage and uh, I was terrified to sit in for Tony. The truth is I hadn't sung any of these songs on stage. I'd done this, uh, I just finished uh, Call Me Responsible. Mm-hmm. And so... What I did was I got on stage, nervous, terrified, 
my record hadn't come out yet. And uh, for the first time, I sang one of these songs on the record. And I got about three bars in. I was feeling good. And Simon Cowell looked at me, made an ugly, ugly face, and then gave me, an, gave me an eye roll. And it was it. I was, it, it, it. You know, I'm a guy, like, especially at that point in my life, what I would do is what I, as an artist, as a human being, mm -hmm. m how I would protect myself when someone did that or someone hurt me like that mm -hmm. is I, I, shut, I shut down. So what I did was, if you ever go back and watch the American Idol thing, I completely shut down. I shut down. I become aloof. I stop caring. Um, that's, my, that's my protection. You know, I just say, oh, yeah, well, you know, sorry. <laughs> And I just, and I, but I was so aloof that uh, in the press the next day, uh, there was a huge, there was a huge uh, controversy because they couldn't believe that this Michael Bublé guy uh, came on American Idol and he was hammered. He was drunk. Yeah. Unfair. I was, whatever, it is what it is. But, but yeah, but yeah. I, yeah, I sucked. It was a terrible, terrible performance. But and what's funny is that later I went to the X Factor in the UK. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I was sitting with, uh, what's her name? Uh, oh, the, she, she, the, no, not Abdul, no, it's a girl in the UK. She, Cheryl, not Cheryl Cole, the other, the other one, Danny Minogue, Kylie Minogue's oh, yeah, sister. Oh, right, Danny Minogue. Okay. And I said, uh, and I was like, uh, and I said, you know what, Danny? I said, uh, I didn't really want to come down here. I said, you know, Simon was a, he was a, he was a dink, you know? And I said, you know, I thought it was rude and da 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 da, -da and he ruined my time there and da da da. And I guess, I, and I was like, well, don't worry about it. I'll just get this done and I'll get out of here. And I guess she went and talked to him. And he, I don't think he had any clue. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think, I know. That day that he had given me that eye roll, that had nothing to do with me. He just was in an ornery mood. He was sitting in the studio for five hours. He, he caught my eye, whatever, and then did this eye roll thing, like, get me out of here. He felt really bad. He felt really bad. He felt he bad, and he's been, he's been, like, and, and now that I know him, he's, like, the, he's always just incredibly sweet and really generous with his time and mm -hmm. a very kind man, but that kind of thing can kill you on stage in a second. Sure it can, because you absorb, you do, that's you why, do look out. Yeah, and that's yeah. why, you know, if you've ever seen those clips, guys, where that kid comes up and sings with me on stage, mm -hmm. the reason that I don't like to have people come up on stage with me is because it's dangerous. And when I say dangerous, it's not dangerous for me. It's dangerous to the 15-year-old kid because his mother decides that this kid is the greatest singer ever, which, by the way, I don't care if my kids can sing. I'm going to tell my family. I'm going to tell them, you're the greatest singers that ever lived. This is what parents do. They support you. They love you. And so they send this 15-year-old kid up to sing. And if he sucks, I would never say anything bad, but 15,000 people yeah, yeah. will. Yeah, they'll, right. they'll boo. They, people will boo. It's happened before. And... Think about that, that kid, that, there's a dream crushed in front of all those people. That's, it's, 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 that's serious trauma. So I, uh, anyway, the, the kid was good. <laughs> if you watch the clip and you see my face, I'm so happy he's good. That... <laughs> it's a relief that he's good. Oh, can you imagine that, Christopher? Yeah. You're on stage performing. Okay, so here you are, Christopher Ward. You've released your new album, Same River Twice, which came out just a few months ago, okay? And the first single is your cover of your own song, Black Velvet. And you're on one of those shows, and you're performing in front of someone like Simon Cowell. And you're performing it, you're giving it your all, 
And you look down and there's the Simon Cowell figure, whether it's Simon himself or someone else, and you look down and they roll their eyes. Wouldn't that be devastating? That would be very hard, especially because the spotlight is on him and you, essentially. You can understand why Buble was so upset in that moment. Yeah, I... I, I find it, it opens up a side of his personality, too, that is very likable. It's the guy who is, in fact, vulnerable yes. to that type of thing, as opposed to being just bulletproof and it's like, oh, well, screw him. you know. Yes. No, it bugged him. And it, it continued to bug him until he sort of resolved it much later, yes. which I, I love that part of him. I know. I do, too. Yeah. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Still more to come with Michael Buble including the backstage drama that was happening just before this interview started. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. We're now in the middle of a 2011 conversation with Marilyn Dennis and Michael Buble. Christopher? Tom, here Buble talks about show prep and how he feels before stepping on stage. When I go and see you, I think, what is he thinking before he comes on stage? Is he nervous? You're scratching. You're nervous a little bit. Are you nervous a little bit? I'm never nervous, no. You feel like I'm going to give him a great show. Like, I mean, honestly, I do. I feel feel like I'm, I try very much to stay in the moment. And by doing that, it allows me to think to myself, my God, I'm lucky. The God, Jesus, the universe, whatever you like to call it, has been incredible to me. The fact that I get to go out on stage, do what I love, be comfortable, laugh with with these people that are an extension of my family. You know, mm-hmm. you know, fifteen thousand people or 50,000 people, 50, people that took their hard-earned money yeah. and and you know their their valuable time and came to see me. I mean, it means a lot to me, and I. Yeah. I really do, I try not to take it for granted. I, I, even in my shows at night, I will, I will talk about this. I'll say, you guys, I try to stay present because it means a hell of a lot to me that you're here with me. And mm-hmm. I really, I love it. I love it. It's like my joy. It really is. It's bliss up you there. You always put on a great show and I love your sense of humor. It's not just the music, it's your sense of humor. It's, you take in where you are. Yeah, my sense of humor is there because I'm, I'm sad inside. <laughs> are you a clown? Are you a clown? Look at your furrowed brow. It's true. Oh, Buble is a very goofy guy in interviews almost all the time. You know, the funny thing is, Christopher, I was at this event. Right. And it was a massive event with invitations to people. We were meeting in Marilyn Dennis's television studio, but this was actually being recorded for our radio show. Right. Okay. So it was a live event. So there's always a lot on the line when you have a large group of people and, you know, sound people, and then they were videoing some of it for Marilyn's show and all that. And Michael comes out and he is in a foul mood. Oh, no. Right? And it's unfortunate because something had just happened backstage before he went out where he found out that his wife, Luisana, her phone had been hacked. And very personal stuff had been revealed, I guess. And so he was disgusted by the whole thing. And we actually don't play that part of the interview because it just, trust me, it brings the room down completely. And we were worried that this great event with Michael Buble was going to kind of disintegrate into this anger that he had. Now, he wasn't being, like, he wasn't like, raging or anything like that but he was just very sad very upset and he was just saying you know i'm just so disgusted i don't know what i have to do he goes i guess after we're done here i gotta look into this but this is like you know 
don't people have morals, that kind of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. So it was a weird moment, but of course, as you can hear, it turned into this kind of very typically warm and funny Michael Bublé interview. You know, it was great. He relaxed, he started having fun, and then so did we. Good thing. Yeah. Okay, so we have one more clip here. This is a kind of an odd one, and this is about his relationship with Luisana. Would you have a question for Michael Bublé? Yeah. No? Go ahead. Hi. Um, I just oh. wanted to know, actually, if you wanted to ditch the hot model wife and shack up with an exceptionally average woman. <laughs> there is nothing average about you. If I wasn't so scared of my wife, I probably would. You, you know what? I, I read somewhere that you said that she's tougher than yours. I'm just true? more, I'm just more like lovey. Like she's, she's, it's funny because her, her, her grandma was like this and her sister's very warm, but my wife isn't like, okay, so here's the example. Okay. I wake up in the morning, I look over and I, and I say, hello, beautiful girl. I say, I love you so much. You don't even know. I love you so big from here to Disneyland. And then she says, me too. <laughs> and, then, and then I say to her, well, how come you, I said, I love you. And you, you, you say, me too. You can't just say, I love you back. And she'll say, oh, yeah, Mike, you know I love you. Why do I have to say it? There you go, a gem from the Famous Lost Words archives from 2011. Marilyn Dennis in conversation with Michael Bublé. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. Before we talk about some of the tours that are coming up this year, I want to tell you a story, okay? It's a story of journey. And the story itself is a journey. First, Steve Perry, the former lead singer of Journey, had sued, just, this is just a few months ago, he sued Jonathan Cain and Neil Sean to stop them from using Journey song trademarks in their merchandise. Then, just a few weeks ago, Steve Perry dropped the suit because it looked like they came to some sort of agreement. But the real drama in the band is now between Jonathan Cain and Neil Sean. Neil says that he isn't being allowed access to the band's American Express card. John says it's because Neil has gone on a spending spree, and the fighting about that continues. But just a few weeks ago, Neil Sean issued a cease and desist against Jonathan Cain for playing Don't Stop Believing at events for Donald Trump. Cain is a big supporter, and his wife Paula is Trump's spiritual advisor. But Sean says that Cain has no right to use Journey for politics, and the sniping between these two continues. But this is the weird part. Journey with Neil Sean and Jonathan Cain are presently on tour together. So let's talk about some upcoming tours starting with Journey. They have Canadian dates that include Montreal, Ottawa, Quebec City, and Toronto, and those are all in early March. And the opening act is Toto. That's fantastic. That's a great lineup. Okay, so we've heard a lot about April Wine lately. I was lucky enough to talk with Miles Goodwin on a previous show. Miles, a, a friend of the pod, as we say. The very final April Wine show with Miles Goodwin, who's basically, you know, the leader, the lead singer, the, the songwriter, he is giving it up because of his health issues. And so he's passing the torch onto a fellow named Mark Perrant who will replace Miles Goodwin on guitar and vocals. And 
Miles says, I know Mark personally, and I know he's the only person I feel extremely confident and comfortable with continuing the music and legacy of April Wine. I can't wait for the fans to meet him and see him in concert. But that final show with Miles Goodwin is on March the 2nd in Truro, Nova Scotia. Okay, this one really caught my eye. It's the Judd's Farewell Tour, which is very unusual and terribly tragic with the passing of Naomi Judd uh, last April due to her taking her own life. So what it will be is Winona Judd taking the stage to honor her late mother. And that tour is going on. That tour ends on February 25th with Brandy Carlisle joining in. Love Brandy. Okay, Bruce Springsteen. We've heard a lot about this tour, especially because of the prices and the whole Ticketmaster debacle. Springsteen will play from now until mid-April in North America, but no Canadian dates at this point. Paramore is back. That's a big tour that's already started. Only one Canadian date, Toronto, on June the 8th. Billy Joel with Stevie Nicks. That's March to September. And as far as I can tell, there are only seven shows with the two of them together. That would really be something to see. But none of those shows are on this side of the border. Billy Joel, on his own, he continues touring and, of course, has regular monthly gigs at Madison Square Gardens in New York City. Taylor Swift, of course, this is the tour that almost single-handedly brought down Ticketmaster. And I think the repercussions of that are going to last for quite a while. That's March to August and only U.S. dates so far. Okay, Janet Jackson, April, May, and June, she'll be in Toronto the day after the May 2-4 weekend. And for everyone outside of Toronto who aren't getting their fair share of concert action, there is one superstar who is making it her business to visit most of the markets in this country. And that, of course, is Shania Twain. April to November, get this, she's playing Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatoon, Halifax, Winnipeg, Moncton, Ottawa, Quebec City, Montreal, Hamilton, London, and Toronto. That's amazing. Lizzo, she would be so much fun to see. Lizzo is touring from April to June, and it looks like her one and only Canadian date is Montreal on May 4th. Brian Adams with opening act Joan Jett in the summer. Okay, there are no Canadian dates, and I'm going, how can that be? But then I remembered, of course, he toured the country extensively here last fall. Beyonce, massive tour, the Renaissance Tour, sold out July to September That's Toronto in July for two shows at the Dome and Vancouver in September. Madonna, a lot of talk about this upcoming tour, July to October. The tour starts in Vancouver on July 15th. She's in Toronto and Montreal in mid-August for two shows in each of those cities. And of course, for our listeners in Windsor, many of the above tours are hitting Detroit. So check out the tour dates for those shows. That does it for this week. Famous Lost Words is created and produced by my co-host, Tom Jokic, executive producer, Sarah Cummings. To binge the more than 100 past episodes, check out the iHeartRadio app or any podcast platform and just browse the library. We're confident you'll find something you like.